So I was reading a book this week. It's a sermon commentary, actually, from the mid-20th century, given to me by a priest who's now deceased. I try to read at least three books for every new book that I read. I can't remember what C.S. Lewis's ratio is, but I find that to be a good one. And the author writes about the missing of the coming of the king. He says, in 1911, when I was lecturing to the British troops in India, I saw the king emperor, George V, make his state entrance into Delhi. A million people had gathered to greet him and had fasted for a week in order to have eyes pure enough to gaze on the king. But several plots against his life had been discovered and for his protection, he rode amidst eight field marshals, all wearing the same uniform, so that it was difficult to tell which was the king. Many of the villagers returned to their homes in tears of disappointment. At night, a converted Brahmin, a fervent Christian, gave an impassioned address to 100 British soldiers on missing the coming of the king. The story, of course, from over a century ago illustrates the point that sometimes we can miss the king even as he goes before us. And indeed, when we come to the season of Advent, we remember the three comings of the king, Jesus, the ultimate king. The first, of course, is the coming of the king in Bethlehem as a humble child born The second coming of the king is the coming of the king in the church, in the sacrament, and of course, as Jesus reminds us on All Saints' Day, in the faces of those whom we serve. And the third coming of the king that we look to in Advent is his final coming, his final coming, where we won't miss it, and no one will. Today's first lesson is another apocalyptic one. Remember, the word apocalypse means what from last week? Revealing. Yes, revealing or revelation. In Zechariah chapter 14, scholars call this part of the second oracle of Zechariah. That's our first reading today. And like so many prophecies, this one is not referring to one event, but to a series of events. The day of the Lord is a time of reckoning and restoration. But it is a time that occurs again and again before it's ultimately completed and fulfilled. When we look at the prophecy against Jerusalem in the first lesson, I believe it's a prophecy about the church. But there's a lot of backstory here. The apostles speak of Jerusalem as the church throughout the epistles. For example, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, the author of Hebrews speaks of that heavenly Jerusalem that we look towards. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 24, St. Paul refers to that heavenly Jerusalem, the church, as our mother. In the first council of Jerusalem, recorded in Acts chapter 15, The Apostle James, who was head of the council that ruled the church due to, and ruled the church due to his being bishop of Jerusalem, 
makes a judgment speaking for the church and that the church should not make it difficult for Gentiles to enter into the Jer- Jerusalem as the church. He quotes another prophet, Amos, chapter 9. He says, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may see the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord. Who does these things? Things known from long ago. So therefore it seems that the apostles are interpreting Zechariah's prophecy here as partially fulfilled, but also ongoing. What's always difficult to understand with prophecy is, that, is to ask the question, is this symbolism that we're reading about, or is it literal? Or is it a little bit of each? Or is it each at different times? Prophecy is very difficult to discern, except for after the prophecy has occurred. Look at the prophecies about Jesus. Verses 4 and 5 of today's reading is where we'll start. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east and west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. But from our view, there's at least 2,000 years between some of these occurrences. We've seen the fall of Jerusalem physically, right? But now, of course, in the 20th, in the 20th century, we saw its restoration. And we've seen the church take on the mantle being grafted in as the new Israel, as the new Jerusalem. And yet there's some 2,000 years between Jesus' coming and saying what he says in today's gospel and today. But what's the first thing that we can apply from the prophecy of Zechariah? Well, first of all, Zechariah predicts a terrible time of persecution in Jerusalem and of Jerusalem, which is historically taken to be the church, if I've said with his triumphant coming. The first several verses of this prophecy is startling. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Then we pick up with verse 4, where we started. A sobering prophecy. And one that I believe has been fulfilled and yet will be fulfilled and is being fulfilled even now. 
Open Doors USA, an organization that tracks things of persecution as well as other things, talks about how today, at this moment, there are more persecuted Christians than ever in the history of mankind. Some 309 million Christians in Jerusalem, in the church, are persecuted today. One in eight experience high levels of persecution. And that includes almost 5,000 killed and around 4,500 arrested and imprisoned according to their numbers in 2021 alone. We often think of Christian persecution as something of the past, as something that's long gone with the Roman Empire. But friends, that's not the reality. Of course, it happened in the past, but I invite you to go and read those statistics on opendoorusa.org or other sites. The kingdoms of this world are at war with the church. They always have been. They always will be until heavenly Jerusalem descends and the kingdom of God comes fully and will have no end. So prepare for the return of the kingdom in community. In our gospel passage today, Jesus talks about the signs before he returns to judge the living and the dead. Look at Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. What does he say? And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven and earth will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is near." What is, what is Jesus' instruction to us, the church, as to how we're to prepare for his imminent return? He does not tell us to try to figure it out. He does not try us to tr- tell us to try to decode the prophecies. But rather, what does he tell us? Straighten up. Lift up your heads. Because your redemption is drawn, drawing near. In the Didache, the non-canonical but earliest record of the teaching of the apostles, so the first writings of the apostles outside of Holy Scripture, the apostles instruct the early church, quote, Watch over your life. Be ready. Meet together frequently in your search for what is good for your souls. This echoes what St. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in today's reading. Turn with me to it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 and 13. It's on page 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
with his saints. What are we to do? How are we to respond? By gathering together, by not forsaking the assembly, by loving one another and those outside of us. It's a simple call, but it's so simple that many people miss it and try to make it more complicated. What St. Paul and the Didache are both saying is that we're not to be startled and fearful about the coming of the end, but rather we're to be steeled for it. Steeled, not startled. Why does Jesus give us his prophecy? So that we might steel ourselves to this reality and not be shaken when we see the things that we've seen, will see, and those things which are worse in persecution. I confess sometimes I fall into the camp of being startled by the wickedness of this world. And yet, I should not be, and neither should you. And yet, how many of us had discussions around the Thanksgiving table this year with one of our relatives about how things are going to hell in a handbasket, right? They shouldn't startle us. These things in the Bible are not to scare us. They're in the Bible to wake up those who are lax in their faith, yes. And they're, wake up, they're, they're a wake-up call that we might endure to the end. This is not some kind of end-the-times haunted house or apocalypse movie that you'll see from Hollywood. This is Jesus giving us this knowledge so that we might have hope in the kingdom to come. Straighten up, raise up your heads, gaze upon God, see the King. St. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage in the first half of the 200s, writes this, Beloved brothers and sisters, whoever serves as a soldier of God stationed in the camp of heaven already hopes for divine things. He should recognize himself so that we should have no fear or dread at the storms and whirlwinds of this world. Christ foretold and prophesied that wars, famines, earthquakes, and epidemics would arise in various places so that an unexpected new fear of destructive agencies might not shake us. Those words of St. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, in the 200s apply equally strongly today, if not more so. If he were alive today, this dear bishop from the 3rd century might ask, why are you so surprised, startled, or shaken in your faith when you hear and experience such things as wars, famines, earthquakes, and epidemics. Did you honestly think that we were beyond that? These things are wake-up calls, friends, to align our hearts with the Scriptures and with our Lord. I am still greatly saddened by how many shrank away from the faith due to the most recent COVID pandemic. The statistics tell the bleak story. In a recent article in November from the Wall Street Journal, it was reported that attendance in churches is down 30 to 50% nationwide from before COVID. How many will become lost? How many will just slip away? How many will no longer grow? 
As much as I'd like to leave that COVID experience in the rearview mirror, and boy, I would, why did we have such difficult conversations in 2020 about spiritual health? Why did we take the time to talk about that? Because things could get much worse than what happened here in 2020. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for things to get worse? And our preparation should not just be focused upon ourselves, but also on those around us, to spiritually prepare ourselves and our family and our friends and our neighborhoods to rise up and look at the king in such situations. People deal with adversity in many different ways, but the works of darkness are constantly trying to assault us, both on the inside of our hearts and on the outside through the world. And if we're not careful, we'll fall into despair and not see the king. We see another real problem in this country today. According to a recent USA Today um, poll taken, a record number of people, actually this was a study undertaken, a record number of people have died from drugs, alcohol, and suicide in 2019. Suicides and drug overdoses are through the roof. What causes this? Well, I could give it the religious name, but I'll quote the doctor in the newspaper. The most important key takeaway here is that we are dying earlier from preventable causes than we ever have before, says Dr. Ben Miller, Chief Strategy Officer of Wellbeing Trust. The reason that we are dying is what we call deaths of despair. Deaths of despair. And that's the spiritual ailment that's far worse than any other ailment. For these deaths of despair cause drug abuse, alcoholism, abuse, and suicide. We continue to go in the wrong direction with those trends as a country. The book that I've chosen for us to study this Advent as a parish is a small book, which should be out on the table there, although we had some confusion with our ushers today, um, called, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Is Christmas Unbelievable? It's a book that comes from England, from an author, who talks about the fact that Jesus was a real person. And in England, only 40% of people believe that Jesus was a real person. Here in the United States, it's, up to, it's still at 90%, right? Still 90% of people in the United States believe Jesus was real. Yet, one poll found that only 50%, only half, believe that he's God. If Jesus isn't God, all we have is despair. For Christmas is all about Emmanuel, God with us, that first coming of the King, the second coming of the King as he feeds us here and now, and the final coming of the King who is God. God with us. How many people need to hear that message? How many of us need to remember it and continue to feel it? The answer is all of us, of course. 
This is where the church comes in. Not just to proclaim the good news, but also to be a place where people are gathered, reinforced, and steeled in belief, in community, and in sacrament. If you're not gathering with the body, with the community of the church, at least weekly, you are weakening yourself. I can't put it any more frankly. You are weakening yourself if you're not physically gathered with the church weekly. And if you're careful, if you're not careful, you won't be prepared for the hardships of life, whether it's persecution or, the own, or your own hardships that you find in the living out of life. Yes, in the big picture, some things will get worse and some things will get better. But in our individual lives, lives hardships will come no matter, no matter what happens in the big picture, no matter where we are in the prophecy. God wants all people to be prepared for the coming of the King. Whether we see Him come in clouds descending, as we'll sing at the end of this service, or whether we meet Him through the veil of death. The Lord is coming soon. Soon, somehow, to you. As Zechariah prophesies in verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And as our Lord Jesus reassures us in the gospel, Luke 21, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So friends, expect persecution. Expect hardship. Jesus has told us to do so. But to do so, steeled in hope and not startled. Be part of the message of that hope to a dark, dark world. Why is it, friends, that we take the better halves of our Sunday mornings every week to gather together for Sunday school and the liturgy? Why is it that we risk getting sick in order to not forsake the assembly as much as we could for the last several years? Why do we read the Bible and pray daily worldwide as a communion? Why do we meet together in fellowship groups, in committees, and in other ministry groups? Why do we go out of our way to help those in despair, to help those who are lost, to learn how to reach them, to read books ourselves so that we might be equipped to use cards like the outreach cards that are in each one of those books? Why do we do all of this? Why do we pray litanies around the church that take forever, right? The great litany is great because not only is it substantially great, but it's huge, right? Why do we do all that? We don't do it because it's some nice cultural thing. No, we do it because it is the essence of our connection with the Lord and the King of the world. Because we expect Him to come. Because we long for Him to come. Because we want to persist in our faith, faith that when He comes, we might not be asleep, but awake with our heads raised up, watching for the King. Lo, He comes with clouds descending, once for our salvation slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of His train. Alleluia! Alleluia! 
God appears on earth to reign. Friends, as we enter another church year and another Advent, be expectant. Look back at the first coming of the Lord. Look at his coming now in the church and in his sacrament. And look for his final coming. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.